Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, we're talking about those who have made a life's work from dealing with death as a profession. Journalist and author Hayley Campbell is with us to talk about her extraordinary book, All the Living and the Dead. This conversation coming up is hosted by broadcaster and writer Blanche Girouard. And as you might expect from a book about death, it contains some themes surrounding grief and bereavement that some listeners may find distressing. Let's join Blanche talking to Hayley Campbell now. This is a gruesome book, a grisly book, a fascinating, thought-provoking, you know, unlike anything I've ever read, I have to admit. And I'm very, very glad I have read it. So I just wondered, it's okay for us, we at least are learning this kind of secondhand through you, but what made you willing to take on this subject and why did you write it? (laughs) We should point out that the new paperback has flowers on the front, so it can't be that (laughs) gruesome. (laughs) Um, I I wrote it because I guess I was a strange little kid, you know, but I didn't think I was strange. It's only in hindsight that you kind of think maybe everybody else thought I was strange. And it was, um, you know, I was just really interested in what happened to dead bodies. And maybe some of that had something to do with the fact that I grew up in Australia. And when I'd walk to school, if a dead bird fell out of the tree, I could watch it rotting in real time on my way to school. Uh, Whereas I don't really experience that in, in London so much. But I found that when you ask questions about death and dead bodies, in school, I would get teachers telling me, oh, we don't ask about that. You know, if somebody's grandma died, we don't ask what happened to their body. And it was a Catholic school. So I mostly got answers about heaven and, and where your soul goes. And that's not really wanted, what I wanted to know about. It was just the practical stuff. And my dad would tell me what would happen, but it was when I, whenever I left the house, really, which makes my house sound like the Adams family, and it might have seemed like that to other people, but it was just basic stuff I wanted to know. And I think in the book, you tell an anecdote about your father's job and how that actually did get you to see some really, some sites that, to be honest, if the teachers at school were told that you'd seen those sites now, social services would have been called into your house. <laughs> so I wonder if you could just tell the audience what you saw as a child. Well, my my dad is a comic book artist called Eddie Campbell, and he did a, a graphic novel called From Hell with Alan Moore, which is about the Jack the Ripper murders. And if you've seen that comic, you know it's quite gruesome. And um, when I was a kid, he was drawing it because he drew it when I was between three and you know, I think he finished it when I was 13. And he had lots of crime scene pictures on his drawing board as reference. And I was quite used to seeing that kind of stuff around. My friends who came over after school (laughs) were not used to that kind of thing, but it was, I think it was weirder for them to see a dad who was home all day because he just stayed at home. He worked at home, whereas they barely ever saw their dads and mine was drawing dead women all day. (laughs) So what actually triggered writing the book though? You know, 13, you see all these pictures. What made you actually sit down and start, you know, put a pitch to a publisher and, and go ahead? The thing I love about being a journalist is that you're allowed to go places and ask questions. And if you're cheeky about it, you can use it to exploit your interests. And um, I was writing a lot of pieces about people who worked in the death industry, but in a sort of like I was circling it. I wasn't really facing it 
head on in the way I wanted to do it. Um, so I put together a proposal just knowing that if somebody bought it, there's, there's something you get when you know that you're going to write about something or, you know, somebody has given you permission to write about something. You become emboldened. It's like you're armored and you can walk into places and ask to see things that the general public isn't allowed to see. So I think I really wrote it for me. It's kind of selfish. I just wanted to see all of these things, but it's so interesting. And it's stuff that I really think people should know. And I've become kind of evangelical about various parts of it. So I think it was really useful. Well, you certainly, you know, you certainly do take us to things we don't usually see really graphically. I think I, I talked to you earlier and I said that there's one passage that made me cry in this book because um, my own father's died recently. And when I read this, I found it very difficult um, because we don't see this bit. And so I wonder if I want you to read it to everyone. I want everyone to, to suffer like sure. I did. What's really interesting is that since this, because this book originally came out in hardback in March last year, and everybody I speak to has a different bit that gets to them. It, and sometimes it's a bit that, like this bit, it's a bit I go, that bit got to you? There are more obvious things, but it's it's really personal what people pick out. Well, maybe um, let's hear this bit and I can say why it got to me. And you can tell me about bits that get to other people and why, you know, what it is that triggers these different reactions. Okay. So yes, this just to tell everyone. So this is Haley's first encounter with a dead body. It's in a mortuary, um, a funeral home mortuary. And the man is called Adam. He's died naturally in bed. So it's, it's a normal, I don't know how old, how old was he? 40s. So he's, this is not a gruesome death. It's a natural death. But this is what happens to a body when it's in the mortuary. And I was in the mortuary to dress him for his coffin, which was um, an experience I didn't know I was going to get when I started this book. But if you ask, you get strange things. And this is what I got. Um, so this is the bit that got to you. I had wanted to see what death looked like, and Adam looked dead, unembalmed, naturally dead. He had been in these refrigerators for two and a half weeks, and it showed, even though in terms of decomposition, his had been a best-case scenario. The interval between his death and cold storage had been kept to a minimum. His mouth was half open, just like his eyes. I could not tell what colour they had been in real life, or if any of the colours he was now would relate to anything he looked like a month ago. He was a sickly yellow from jaundice, but it wasn't the brightest colour on his body. As his t-shirt slid over his head, I could see that each protruding rib was highlighted in an even brighter yellow, contrasting with the lime green of his stomach and the darker black green in the spaces between each jutting bone. The stomach is usually the first place to show signs of decomposition, filled as it is by design with bacteria, but I didn't know that death, something so emotionally black, could be so bright. The sight of microbial life taking over a human one is almost luminous. His back was purple from where the blood had pooled. No longer pumped around the body by the heart, it is left to coagulate and darken where it stands. His skin was bunched in places from being stored in a position that a live person would have wriggled out of for comfort. But without life and movement to keep skin supple, a fold remains a fold, an indent, an indent. His legs were yellow-white at the top and purplish behind the knee. He wasn't old, forties maybe. His family wanted his shirt back. It was blue. Thank you. So yes, it does say right at the end that he's 40s. <laughs> I think maybe because my dad was 90, it felt different. But can you see why that triggered a response or not? Is it totally baffling? No, everything in here is meaningful. To me, another part of dressing Adam was when we went to put his belt on, because 
you dress people in the clothes that their family have brought to dress them in. And, and his family had chosen just, you know, worn in clothes, like a band t-shirt and some jeans and some shoes. And I noticed that his Converse shoes were brand new. So he'd bought them and they hadn't had a chance to be worn in, but his belt, the hole that fit him was a recently punched one. Um, which means that he had lost weight in recent times. Um, so you can piece together a story from the stuff that families give you in a shopping bag. And it was a sad one. Yeah, I think it was, I think just the, the, the colors of the body, the reality of what happens to a dead body um, and the fact that, you know, kind of imagining that that had been, you know, the body of someone I loved and that that was what would have happened to them. I found, I think just the frailty, uh, mine was an old body, but an old body is very frail. And when you see, that frailty. When you see your parent naked, you see a frail, you know, it's quite upsetting. And to imagine it with all these funny colours and blacks and yeah. blues and purples and yellows, I found really got to me. But what, what other parts have massively got to other people? Well, like you mentioned when we were speaking earlier today, um, there, there's a funeral director who told me that something that family members do, and like many, many people do this, but nobody really mentions it, is that when you're when you're in that grieving state and the funeral home says, come and give us some clothes to dress your person in, you forget the little things. And he told me that, um, you know, people always forget socks and underpants. So, um, he has in his funeral home, all kinds, all sizes of socks and all sizes of underpants, because he says, I can't bury somebody half dressed. No one will ever find out if he, if he didn't, you know, if he, if he didn't do this, but it, it's the way he sleeps at night. <laughs> he wants to feel like he's done his job properly. And that is what got to me the most is that there are so many people who are doing their job, but who are doing, they're going beyond and they're doing little extra things that no one will ever notice because they're, they're doing it for a, a dead person who's not going to know about it, but the family will never find out. And they're doing it for this person they don't know. And I found that again and again with each job, there was just a little, a little thing that they would do that would really get to me. Like one of the things that got to me was, um, when I interviewed the, the grave diggers and, um, they're just men in their seventies who've been grave diggers since they, they left school. And, uh, after he dug the grave, I noticed he put a little pot down by the headstone with soil in it. And he said, oh, that's for the vicar to throw during the ashes to ashes, dust to dust bit. But when I looked in it, the soil was completely different to the stuff that had come out of the grave. You know, the grave was all heavy clay and this stuff in the pot was sandier. It was lighter. And, um, I asked him about it and he, he looked like, it was like he hadn't thought about it in the last 50 years he'd been doing it. He said, oh, I, that, that's the dirt from molehills. He collects them in his garden because when the priest throws the, the dirt, he doesn't want heavy clay to land heavily on boxes, um, on, on the coffin because it makes a thud. And it's just these, these little things where people are, are thinking about how the grieving family will take it. That's the kind of stuff that got to me, I think. I can totally see that. Why do, why do you think we should see a body, you know, in that slight state of decomposition? Why shouldn't we be shielded from it? To me, I, I have to see things to believe them. Not just, you know, it's not like I'm disbelieving of the media or something like that. It's just in order to process something, I find it 
it really helps to see things. Like I, I grew up in Australia and I've still got lots of friends and family over there. And I see people die on Facebook. Uh, a friend of mine, um, you know, I was seeing lots of people, there was an announcement and there was lots of like rest in peace posts. And, and this was a friend of mine I went to school with and she'd, um, she'd killed herself. Um, but it was just another thing on the screen. It's really hard to take something in. It was, you know, I was, I was sad and horrified, but you know, a, a few months later, I would think of something that, oh, I should text her about that. She'd think that was funny. Um, and then I'd remember. And I think that if you have more interaction with the person, if you're there, if you are a part of their death ritual, and I'm not a religious person, so I mean ritual in the sense of, you know, like helping dress your person, I think is, it's a, it's a transformative moment emotionally and, and as a way of processing and as a part of your grief. And it's something that we, we don't get the chance to do and you are allowed to do it. This is the thing I've become evangelical about. You're allowed to ask to be there to dress your person. You know, just in normal funeral homes, they don't bring it up because it sounds like a strange thing to do, but it's really not. And I am now going to do that with all of my family because I found it such a profound moment with a complete stranger that I think it can only be helpful with um with somebody you do love that does sound convincing i can see that i mean there are so many things in this book that i just didn't know and, and you're right many of them i wish i had known or I, i'm glad i do now know so for example we all know in theory that you know giving your body to science is a good thing but i had absolutely no idea until i read this quite what it can do um and i just <laughs> wanted you to because you went to the mayo clinic and you do have a little passage about what you know some recent cases of how this um the mayo clinic it was its um anatomy um, what's it called? It's, it's their, yeah, anatomy school. Yeah, how, how um, that helped. So if you could just read that bit and then we can talk okay. about it. So the Mayo Clinic is a very um, experimental place and um, they've got a huge medical school there. Okay, so here's a bit. Once or twice a month, a doctor will ask for his help. I should explain that this is Terry. He is the director of the anatomical services. So he looks after all of the people who've donated their body to science. Um, who, he files them away in the freezers and he has all of their um, ID tags on them and he keeps track of them. You sign up with him and then he looks after you. So once or twice a month, a doctor will ask for his help. There was the doctor who perfected his tool to cure carpal tunnel syndrome on the wrists of the dead. Then there was the doctor who came to him with the problem of a tumour so complex and potentially fatal that surgeons worldwide had refused to touch it. It started at the neck and wrapped its way down around the patient's spinal column like the red stripe on a barber's pole, stopping below the chest. A multidisciplinary team would need to be involved with the different stages of removing the twisted mass rolling through the surgical specialities as they moved further down the spine, front to back, front to back, rotating the man like a rotisserie chicken. So they practiced in Terry's lab, arriving at 10 p.m. after work, leaving at dawn, turning the bodies of the dead, working out their plan. The patient survived. Then there was the face transplant. To prepare for the operation, the surgeons, nurses, surgical technicians and anaesthetists spent 50 weekends in Terry's lab, divided into two small rooms to replicate the cramped operating room. They studied every branch of nerves and what they did for the face. They took pictures and videos and practiced joining them up. Every time they came in, they worked on two different heads. 
they swapped 100 faces. The donors don't leave here in one piece, but Terry makes sure they leave with the right ones. So when the surgeons were done, he would stay behind and swap the faces back. No one would ever know if he hadn't. There is no bone in the facial flesh that would end up in the wrong urn after cremation. He did it because it was the right thing to do, in much the same way that he, as a funeral director, always made sure that everyone was buried in outfits, complete with underwear and socks, even if their family had forgotten to add them to the shopping bag of clothes. Sure, no one would know if he didn't do it, but he would. I found that, you know, so compelling and... The swapping of the faces is exactly what you were talking about. You know, this man swapped back faces himself. He wasn't even the doctors just because that was the right thing to do. I So it, it sums up everything about his job, that he would stay behind and do that. It's huge. And also, I mean, it felt a little bit like an advert for donating your body to science, this chapter. It was a very kind of hard to see why you wouldn't. Is that how it felt writing it? No, but my brother did ask that. He goes, so you're donating your body? And I went, no, i Yeah, are you going to donate? I mean, did you decide you would now to donate your body to science? Uh, no, I don't want to donate my body to science. I'm quite into the um, human composting thing that's that's coming around and um, also the alkaline hydrolysis thing, which is... Um, where a body is uh, dissolved rather than buried or cremated. But surely, I mean, you know, the first, your suggestion, you'll, you'll help some tomatoes. This could actually help a face <laughs> transplant. I know. We are hesitant. I'm hesitant. Why are we hesitant to give our bodies to science like this? Because even when I was standing in the freezer of, of all these body parts and, um, you know, there's heads in bags and legs in bags on the floor and, and I had expected it to be horrific. And... Standing there without the context of what it meant is horrific. But there was this moment when I was standing in there when I realized that this was a room full of incredibly generous people who knew what their body would, was going to, what it was, what was going to happen. Maybe not specifically, but they had some kind of idea, and they were okay with that because they knew um, that they would be helping. And I did ask Terry why people do this. And they get an enormous amount of people signing up every year. You know, it's like 800 people a year, maybe. Um, and two, they get about 200 or so bodies, um, you know, donors who've signed up and then die and then become their, uh, their frozen cadavers. And, um, he said, there's all sorts of reasons that people do it, but because the Mayo is this experimental hospital, they get a lot of patients who went through sur life-saving surgeries there. And then their only way of really saying thank you is to, to train the new lot of surgeons who are going to help other people. It's incredibly generous. I'm not personally that generous, but I, it is a remarkable thing. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. But do you think the reason we're not so generous is because we, we actually kind of can't quite face the idea of being cut up like that and, and having other people. I mean, you talk about Jeremy Bentham who wanted to be publicly dissected. You know, that's my idea of hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, do you think it's because we're shy of our body being cut up by other people, seen by other people? Is that what it is? And yet we're dead. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I know. I know. It is for me. I wouldn't feel comfortable with it. But that was another thing Terry brought up. He was saying that the old people who are dying now lived through very conservative times. And, um, and even so they are donating themselves in full to be nude in front of huge classes of, of, of kids, but he knows that. And so something Terry does, um, this is just a big advert for Terry, really great guy. <laughs> something Terry, a huge part of his job is getting it through to the, the students that this isn't just a piece of meat that you're learning you know, the parts of this is a person. And there are all, all sorts of little ways that he reminds them of that. You know, he, they are, they, they all have their heads shaved. Um, and you, you don't learn their names or their jobs or anything like that because, you know, he wants to keep the people anonymous, but people come in with tattoos and people come in with nail polish on. And he said, there are old men sometimes who come in and you can tell that, their nail polish has been done by you know, a five-year-old, their grandkids. And he says, all of this tells a story. It's not hurting their anonymity in any way. It's just saying that this is a person. And they have this big ceremony at the end of every year to say thank you to all the donors. And it's full of students giving, you know, talks and reading their poetry that they've, they've read. And it's all about how meaningful little things like that were you know, the nail polish and, and how that really helped them know that they were learning not just how a body get, is put together, but how to deal with the fact that this is a person, because you are going to be working on people later on. Mm. You do write about many different ways in which we try to kind of cling on to our dead. I just wondered which you found the most moving or the most ridiculous, actually, of the ones <laughs> you came across. One of the final bits in the book is when I go to the cryonics center in, in Michigan and I thought that I was going to go there and find crazy people because I've, I've, I've grown up watching Austin Powers and Futurama and, you know, cryonics is, is this thing that it's a source of comedy because it's so outlandish that we could freeze people for them to be reanimated in the future. And so to me, that was the, the, the silliest. But then when I got there, it was a completely different experience to the one that I thought I was getting into. It was just, it was just sweet nerds who kept telling me this might not work. <laughs> we're just trying stuff. We know what happens when we bury you or we cremate you, but we're just in an experimental group. So people 
do what they need to to get by with death and grief and as long as nothing is hurting anyone i don't i i would never judge anyone for anything outlandish or strange and i i interview a, a man who makes death masks for people for um dead people so he goes and he takes a, a cast of the dead person's face and then he casts it in bronze and then you get your dead person's face back in a box and you can do whatever you like with it and i asked him what people do with them and he said well a lot of them put them in a drawer because they've got it now they felt like they needed it but they're not really sure where to put it but he said that there are some women who you know it's their dead husband and they sleep with it on the pillow beside them and it's part of their grieving. I was really struck by that one. And I was also really struck, you talked about families in Indonesia who actually periodically take the dead, the entombed, the sorry, embalmed dead out of their tombs, wash and dress them and like have a cigarette by them. That I found very striking as well. Yeah, it, and there are pictures of that. Um, Paul Kudinaris has taken some amazing pictures of it and it just looks like a fun party. It's not the kind of thing I would say, let's do that in England. We should, uh, we should, we should start doing this because it won't, it's not for us. It won't fit us, but it works for them. And I, mean, I love kind of, that. Well I love done that them that for being somewhere. comfortable with that in a way. You know, it's yeah. kind of impressive. I was. You also have a lot of chapters about tragic death. You know, people whose work is really dealing with the worst sights that that most of us will never ever see. There's a company that Kenyan company that sorts things out after a terrible disaster, air crash, you know, um, train crash, and Grenfell. And I just wondered if we could focus on Grenfell because it means so much to people in this country. What struck you most about the people who have been dealing with the Grenfell tragedy and the things that they've been doing? I went to Kenyan, which is in this really boring building out by Heathrow. It's it's one of those that you drive past and never think about. And the reason it's out there is because the people who do these jobs, who they are the disaster teams. So they have to be close to an airport so that they can grab their go bag and fly to wherever the tsunami is or, or the plane crash. And um, when I went there, they have this huge warehouse out the back of their boring office. And at the time I was there, it was full of things that had been pulled from Grenfell because they don't just go and um, when they go to these disaster zones, they're not just um, identifying the dead, but they do that too. Another thing they do is they take all of the personal effects found in the plane crash or the tsunami and they try and find who it belonged to. And that's, they told me that that's something that the police don't really bother with because it's not going to be part of solving the crime. It's just to do with getting things back to people. But Mo, the guy who works there, who is an ex-detective, ex said that um, it's really important to people to have this item that somebody had with them at the time they died. It becomes really, it, it's like a talisman. And so when I went there, they had this huge warehouse that was full of all the things that had been pulled from Grenfell Tower, like bicycles and high chairs, and there were videos and CDs and, you know, just clothes and, and all sorts of things like that. And they were cleaning them and locating the family and trying to get things back to them. And it took a long time. When I went there, they were still sorting through things. And they told me that when they went into this tower, which everybody in London, you know, it's we can we can picture it. it. It loomed over us. When they were going into the tower to pull out all of these things, they found a fish tank that um, one of the people living in the building had owned. And there was something like 23 dead fish in the tank. But strangely, and this is months after the fire, so these 
fish have been without food, without water and without light. There were seven live fish in the tank. So one of the, the Kenyan staff members contacted the family and said, do you want these fish back? And they said, we can't take them in our new place. And so the staff member took them home. And what I love about this story is that they looked after the fish so well that the fish bred and had a baby fish and they called him Phoenix. And I think it's just such a perfect little story about what can come from a burning building. I was really struck, you know, it is a commercial enterprise, the Kenyan one. And at the beginning of the chapter, you talk about how they're there to kind of manage the PR for the, you know, for the aeroplane company or Kensington and Chelsea Council. Or, so did that kind of strike a bad note with you? Or did you feel that actually the people doing the job are doing a great thing for, for the public? Is there a weird disconnect between the fact they're at an open day selling their services and that they're, you know, it's strange, isn't it? Well, they're selling their services to corporations and companies. If they were selling their services to the grieving, I might have a problem with it. But it was, if companies don't do it properly, it's the grieving pe people who will suffer. So I really had no problem with whoever was paying for it. But the, the job they do, they are so specialized that they were telling me that you know, they, they've thought of everything because they've been doing this job. The company is about 100 years old. And so they've been to all kinds of disasters in all kinds of countries. And they know things like Japanese families don't want roses when somebody's died. You, you give them white chrysanthemums to put on the grave. Or um, there was another incident where there, was a, there had been a, a fire. And, um, and so they made sure that the place where all the, um, the families and the surviving victims were staying they made sure that no one was serving any barbecued meat. It there are just little subtle things that they will never tell the families that that's what they're doing. But it, it is the kind of stuff that if you get that wrong as a company, your reputation won't recover. Somebody is hurt forever. And they kept bringing up Malaysian Airlines as a company that had, had screwed up and will never be able to claw it back. Remind us what Malaysian Airlines did wrong. Um, they... There was no information to families. This is the thing that they kept saying. They kept saying that people just want to know the truth and that people can handle grim truth better than you think they can. And that if you tell them nothing because you're frightened or you think it will upset them, their mind will just go crazy and they will fill it with horrors, which is part of why I wrote this book. I think that if, you, if there is a space where information could go and it's denied to you, you will just fill it with horrors. You'll fill it with, you know, bits of information you've gathered from, from news stories or horror movies or, or comic books or whatever it is. And you'll make up your own story. Whereas, you know, Kenyon was, was saying, and, and Kenyon is made up of all sorts of people and, and many of them are ex-homicide detectives. And so they're used to talking to people who've lost someone in a horrible way. And they kept saying, people just want to know. And they will do with that information what they will do, but they need to know. How does it affect the staff themselves? I mean, some of them, you know, as you say, if they go to an air crash and there are lots of dead bodies and they've been in the water and they're dealing with really revolting and upsetting sites, you know, how do they cope and do any of them not cope? Well, now they have um, lots of mental health practitioners as part of of the disaster team themselves. So they have lots of debriefs and there's lots of people hanging around to make sure everyone's okay. But um, Mo 
was telling me that in the past, he's picked the wrong people to take to the job. He says one of the, the most important things is to make sure the person you're picking for the job is right. You can't take someone who's recently bereaved and you can't take somebody who sees this as a, as a kind of personal crusade, like something like they personally have to save something. And he said, um, you know, Mo was part of the team who was identifying people in the mass graves in Kosovo. And he said he took somebody there who was getting into these graves every day and retching as he was digging up these bodies. And he would get in in the, in the morning and retch till the end of the shift. And they kept saying, do you want to go home? You don't have to do this. But that person kept getting in to do this job. And, and he never went on another job again because he was, it, it really got to him. So he said they're a lot more careful these days with who they take and then how they look after them. I think, is he the guy you said had PTSD for the rest of yeah. his life? So, I mean, he was really yeah. seriously affected. Definitely. Yeah. I think he got a payout. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Small price. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, there are quite a few lone wolves in this book, you know, people who really quietly go about their business and no one ever thanks them. Um, I was really struck by the bereavement midwife whose only job is to deliver dead babies. And also the pathologist who you said, you know, after the one of the great disasters, um, you'll have to remind me which one it was. The London Bridge. The London Bridge disaster. There were lots of people who got thanked and she didn't. So I just wondered, you know, which characters of these kind of lone wolves moved you the most? And, you know, who would you do a shout out for? Claire Beasley, the bereavement midwife. So before I started this book, I didn't know that her job existed. I had this big, you know, pin board of all the people I wanted to talk to. I was going to follow the body from, you know, deathbed to either burial or cremation and all the people it would pass along on the way. And um, it, I had never thought about dead babies. And it wasn't until I, I saw one being autopsied in um, the mortuary at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. And I had an experience there that kind of shook me that I wanted to look more at dead babies because we don't really talk about them. And the thing about Claire Beasley was that she came to her job out of fear. She'd been a, um, a young midwife and, um, had an experience where a woman was, she was giving birth to a baby. She knew wasn't going to live, but when, when he was born, he was breathing. So there were a couple of minutes there where this, this mother was screaming Claire's name and saying, can you, you know, do something. And it, got to Claire. She cried in her car on the way home and she carried it with her. And, and years later, somebody was putting together a team of midwives who would just deal with that kind of situation. And so she went through the training and she realized that she could do something. And um, now she's devoted her life to it. And when you think about babies being born, you think about it being this kind of joyful thing. And she's just on a ward where there's, you know, it's silent. And to go to do that every day, that's not, you know, she's not doing that because it's fun or because you get praise because I didn't know she existed, but she's essential. And it's not just her that we, we don't really talk about. The fact that there, there are so many more stillborn babies in the UK than I thought there were. And when people go through that, they're kind of exiled because you don't, you, you don't bring it up at dinner parties. How do you, how do you talk to people about this when they haven't been through what you've been through? And so part of Claire's job is she sees herself as someone who does know what you're going through and who was there and can help you through it. And, um, so her job just isn't this clinical thing. She's really 
at the forefront of this traumatic part of somebody's life and she's helping them get through it. Um, she's heroic. And, uh, and again, you know, this book is full of people we don't really think about, but I think the fact that I spent so long thinking about death that I pitched a book and had a list of people I wanted to speak to. And then I found her, um, towards the end of it just speaks to how ignorant we are of, of people who do these jobs that are so hugely important. Let's move on to the group who I actually did feel some sympathy for, which are the executioners. You did in your book do a wonderful section on um, the historical role of an executioner and how they've always been pariahs. I was really struck, you know, in, in India, I know that there's the untouchables who are outside the caste system and they're the ones who deal with death and in Europe clearly we've also had these kind of untouchables can you just tell us just briefly you know historically what role um how have we treated executioners in the past well um they have been untouchables um there's a a book about the history of execution in France that talks about how they they're even buried in a different part of the cemetery because it's like they can't they they can't touch the general population to such an extent that even in death they are dangerous and they're given these long spoons to go around the markets to collect produce because um they don't want to accidentally touch somebody and so and everybody knew who they were which is something which is quite strange because these days they're anonymous and they're part of they're sort of another cog in the machine and it's, you know, all part of the judicial system and it's all behind closed doors. Whereas everybody in the village used to know who they were. That's and, even um, weirder. In your book, you say they're even anonymous within the prison. So there's like the death squad team and no one in the prison knows who's in that team. When I spoke to Jerry, the executioner, who he was the state executioner for Virginia for 17 years, I went to dinner with him. We went to Red Lobster. The thing that really struck, like he has this, he's come down with this story of how, you know, he's kind of put religion over the top of it. He said that God put him in that position and um, he was doing God's work. But he, the thing was, he wasn't religious when he was doing the job. So it was kind of a, a retroactive um, framework. But occasionally when I was talking to him, he said something that would um, reveal that he wasn't okay with what had happened. And one of them was the fact that on an execution day, he couldn't look at himself in the mirror because he didn't want to see himself as the executioner. And the other thing was that for the whole 17 years that he had this job, he didn't tell his wife. And that is something I can't get my head around. The fact that he was going and doing this job, he pulled the switch on 62 people and he never told his wife. And I find that extraordinary. You talk also, I mean, others, like you said, they changed their number plates before they drove to the execution room, or they even put a hood on their head so they wouldn't be seen leaving their neighborhood. I mean, it's really, did you have sympathy for these people? I mean, it feels like, you know, America has the death penalty and then these poor people have to carry it out. What did you feel? I am anti-death penalty. And I think that if you remove the death penalty, then nobody has to do this job. And these people chose to do this job, so my sympathy for them is limited. But with Jerry, after his job ended, he became an abolitionist. That's how I found him. He was going around the world talking about how we shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't have the death penalty. But his focus wasn't on the fact that we might be accidentally killing in innocent people. His focus was that because of this system, there are people in the world who have to go through what he went through. And he wanted to stop that happening. So he was kind of trying to atone 
for what he'd done in a way, although he said he didn't do it, it was God. A very complicated guy, complicated subject. Finally, because we're really close for time now. Um, I just want to ask about you and how you've been affected. I mean, in the book, you make it clear that seeing that dead baby um, was really quite traumatic for you. I mean, it had a massive effect. And I kind of wondered how you are now. It's actually a year since the book came out. It's the paperback that's come out. But how how are you and, and what lasting impression has it made on you? Well, the baby I saw in October 2018, something like that. And so it's a, it's a while now. Um, and I think writing the book really helped because it's not just a sense, it's not just a case of the pictures, the images are fading because time has happened. It's also the fact that I wrote this book as a way of putting everything in context. And a lot of that was for myself and it is for readers, but I really found it helpful because if I, if I had just seen a dead baby uh, being autopsied, I think that would have been, you know, it's objectively horrific. But if I had had no story behind it and no reason for that baby, you know, that baby led me to Claire Beasley and I learned about this whole other world. So I've been able to put it in a context that is meaningful. So I think I'm okay now, but I wasn't for a while. <laughs> That's lovely to hear and thank you. And I wanted to ask you about embalming. First of all, I had no idea. I thought that it always happens and I thought it was a bit like putting Nivea on a, the outside of a body. And in fact, it's unbelievably different. <laughs> Can you, yeah. I mean, tell us what actually happens when someone's embalmed. Well, embalming, we kind of, yeah, we do think of it as like a Nivea thing um, and no one really thinks about what it actually is. And when you're in the funeral home and you're agreeing to embalming, you might not know because it's now listed as like hygienic treatment and, all, you know, these the funeral industry is all euphemisms and and that's one of them um but embalming is it's a really invasive thing it's replacing your blood with a preservative and um it involves lots of tubing and you put the the needle and the tube in um various arteries in in the neck and elsewhere on the body and it just pushes the blood out and replaces it with this preservative, which is this kind of candy colored pink because dead people are very pale and um, this gives them a more lively color. So it's a, it's a kind of fakery that people find helpful because sometimes people don't want to see what I saw at the begin beginning with Adam and all of those different colors. They just want to see somebody who looks like they're sleeping, but that takes a lot of work. And so my strongest opinion I had going into this book, I think, because I've read uh, Jessica Mitford's The American Way of Death, and she always regarded embalming as a kind of, you know, it was something used to, to gouge the grieving by greedy funeral directors. And it wasn't until I went to speak to actual embalmers who were telling me stories of people who had been embalmed and, and the things they did to, to, it does help the grieving sometimes. Like I'm still, I wouldn't want it to happen to me myself, but they're basically giving the person back to the family in a way that they recognize. So they don't just do the preservative, um, injection. They also, um, you know, they, they think about what perfume the person wore when they were alive, because, they said their job is all about triggering memories and making somebody remember the good times rather than the dead body in front of them. So I, I went in with complicated feeling, well, not very complicated. I went in bluntly saying, I don't like this. And then I had embalmers saying, uh, you've got it all wrong and actually you should go and see it happen. And so I did see it happen and it was the strangest thing. It was when I went in, 
the the body laid out was this um, very thin old man. And over the course of an hour with this preservative being pumped through his body, he puffed up it, and he, he became, you know, um, he aged backwards. And it was the strangest thing I've seen. It was like a, a kind of, you know, it, if you looked away and then looked back, it was like a stop motion thing. And looking at this one man, if I had known him as he looked in life and then walked into that room and seen him as this shriveled old man, he would have been unrecognizable. So, you know, some people aren't quite ready for the, the blunt truth of it. And this is a this is a blurring of the of the edges. It sounds like you're a bit torn. I mean, do you think we should be seeing the reality or embalming our loved one? It's all personal. <laughs> That's another thing I didn't want to do in this book. I didn't want to say this is bad, this is good, you should do this, you should do that. At the end of the book, I say, take all of this and, and do with it what you want, because it's all up to you. And that that is my main issue with the funeral industry is that too many people tell you how you're supposed to feel, how you're supposed to grieve how you're supposed to have your funerals and it should be up to you. You should know everything you can do, including dressing your people. That should be on the list. Do you want to come do this? It shouldn't be a strange thing that you have to feel weird about asking. It should be offered. In which case, I want to do a shout out to Louise Winter, who's a director of a funeral home, who did my dad's funeral because that's exactly what she set up to do. She did it because she thought people should do what they wanted for the funeral and she let people do what, you know, she's very much open to any ideas you have. So that I decorated the coffin and, you know, things like that. Oh, wow. Just last question. There are so many women in this industry now. You know, the woman I've just mentioned, she's the director of a funeral home which she only set up a few years ago. You say most embalmers are now women. What has made this a kind of female profession? Well, I think it's like all professions. that um, it, it seems like there's a huge flood now because we weren't allowed in decades ago. But everybody I asked had a different answer. And, um, you know, they'd always go, well, there's the corny thing that, you know, we're supposed to be more caring and we're supposed to be more, you know, this, or, you know, people are more willing to be emotional in front of us. And that may be true, but I don't know. I think maybe that women are closer to gore and the passage of time and all of that kind of blood and all of that. And maybe we're just kind of built for it. Yeah. And we deal with, you know, I'm dealing with a toddler. We deal with the snot and poo and all Yeah, these. exactly. So maybe you're right. Maybe that actually, I much <laughs> prefer that answer to the idea that we're just kind of caring and compassionate. Me too. Except yeah. lower wages. You know. <laughs> well, Haley, it's been an immense pleasure to talk to you. I recommend highly this book, All the Living and the Dead. Thank you for that. That was amazing. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback, what you think we should be talking about next and what our future debates should be. So send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, head over to intelligencesquared.com.